Welcome to the Polymer Science Podcast. I am Dr. Alicia Buertes. And I'm Jacob Shackman. In this podcast, we'll be speaking to researchers from around the world and talk to them about how their work is improving our daily lives. I hope you enjoy our conversation and that you learn something new. All right. Hello and welcome, everyone. This is Jacob Sheckman, and you're listening to the Polymer Science Podcast. My guest today is Dr. Katrina Knauer, USM alumni, uh, former friend, still friend. I'd say we're still friends, right, Kat? Still friends. Yeah. I'd say okay. we're still friends. Okay. So, and you'll, you'll notice that I, I still, I often call her Kat. I might call you Dr. Kat just for funnies, but um, I like that. Kat, Kat and I have been, have known each other for a long time. And very excited to do this interview. Kat is the Chief Technology Officer with the Bottle Consortium at the National Renewable Energy Laboratories. That's a that's a heck of a title on a lot of things involved, Kat. Tell us <laughs> what I just said, please. Okay, well, it sounds way cooler than it actually is sometimes. Don't get me wrong. I love telling people I'm the CTO of something. Uh, but it's not an actual company or anything like that. It's a research consortium that's based out of NRO, but actually includes 10 national labs and universities. And you heard uh, Jake say bottle. So that's a really, really fun acronym that we came up with being a government lab. We love our acronyms. Uh, and it stands for bio-optimized technologies to keep thermoplastics out of landfills and the environment. And that beautifully came together to make bottle. We're very proud of it. Uh, and it makes it a lot easier to say, but that's essentially what we do. Um, and we're, as you know, you guys already heard based out of NREL and I'm lucky enough to be a polymer scientist that gets to work in bottle, um, and have that really cool, amazing title of CTO. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. What the ultimate coincidence, I guess. Or I get you guys had to work to come up with the appropriate acronym there, but man, can't believe that works so well. So what, I know. you you told us what bottle stands for. I'm gonna read it one more time from the page. Bio optimized technologies to keep thermoplastics out of landfills and the environment. So how what this is obviously um uh a general phrase for a huge, huge process that is going down at NREL and NREL right now, the National Renewable Energy Laboratories. Where do, how do you start with this? Do you, is it literally an order of the word? Like, okay, we need to decide what is bio-optimized technologies. Where, how do you go about fixing, uh, optimizing these technologies to keep thermoplastics out of landfills? Yeah, that's a it's a great question, and it, it includes a lot of different sciences kind of all coming together, uh, working in tandem together. So we're actually not just polymer scientists in bottle. We're we're, as the title says, trying to bio optimize processes and technologies to break down these complex waste streams. But I guess the way I would say we broke down our approach to to something so challenging, so all encompassing this huge, you know, world problem is we tried to break it up into three major research pillars. And so the first pillar, the kind of big, the one at the top, if you think of it as a, as a triangle kind of flowing down is deconstruction. And basically this means we're trying to figure out ways to take these complex polymers and formulations and composites that are going into our waste streams and deconstruct them back into 
useful chemical building blocks. And we like the word deconstruct instead of saying things like recycling, chemical recycling, advanced recycling, all these terms kind of coming out on the scene. Because believe it or not, people tend to get really mad about which words you use when you talk about recycling and will abruptly approach you at the end of your talk and say, that's not true chemical recycling. And uh, regardless of all that, that's why we kind of focused on this you know, bipartisan quote, if you will, (laughs) word of deconstruction. And another part of that being that's exactly what we have to do with these materials, because no plastic that you deal with today exists as a single polymer chain. They're actually really meticulously designed to be perfect formulations that work together in, in a soup of additives and fillers and dyes and pigments, along with the polymer to meet a performance metric. And so we have to deconstruct not just a polymer backbone, but all these other components that come along with it. So it's a pretty complicated step to do that. And we say it's bio-optimized because we're trying to look beyond just kind of conventional depolymerization technologies that have been around for a long time and offset some of the energy requirements by bringing in biology to help us. So we think there's actually a lot of really cool opportunities to combine chemistry and biology into integrated processes together instead of always trying to silo the two so separately from each other. And so that's why we call it bio-optimized, and that's where that came from. So there's that big focus of on the word deconstruction instead of recyclable polymer or recycled material. Now, I mentioned I talked to Dr. Barney Grubbs last week, and he also used that word deconstruction to, for the same focus. And I, I, I want to ask you the same thing. What are the benefits of being able to deconstruct these polymer materials that might end up in in the landfill or something into these raw ingredients? Yeah, so the the benefits come from this idea of this this concept of a circular economy. You know, once we take oil out of the ground, can we keep those carbons circular as long as possible? And the reason we want to deconstruct these formulations back down into chemical building blocks instead of just melting them down and reprocessing them, which is conventionally how we've recycled plastics for the last several decades, is because, as many probably know, that current recycling system and infrastructure leaves a lot to be desired. And our rates continually are low on an annual basis. We recycle approximately, this number changes all the time, so please don't quote me directly. It's but recording, roughly, so it is a direct quote. That's true. It's a recording right now. But, okay, well, all of you out there, this number changes a lot, but it's roughly about 9% of all plastics are recycled per year, those individual plastics. So PET, clear crystalline water bottles, are definitely the highest recycled material in the world. So if you look at just PET, yes, exactly. Nice. I'm holding for, um, for those because I guess this is an audio show. I'm holding up an an iced coffee yeah. cup, a clear, you know, like Starbucks, but not Starbucks, not sponsored. Anyways, yes. continue. Jake is holding up a PET cup, and it's clear and it's crystalline. They don't have a bunch of pigments in them. It's a wonderful substrate, ideally for melting down and reprocessing. And the PET numbers are, they also vary on an annual basis because it depends on demand from the supply chain and it depends on polymer producers and the prices they're putting on virgin material, depends on governments who are regulating taxes on virgin material versus recycled content. And all this is changing so much. And then the next highest recycled polymer is probably going to be HDPE, high-density polyethylene. 
these are the more rigid. It's like a laundry detergent bottle, a shampoo bottle, things like that have a pretty high recycling rate because they're bulky items, easily separated, and they're rigid. And so you don't have this really thin, small format. Is this? Actually, look on the bottom of that. Is that polycarbonate or is it HDPE? Oh, no. It is HDPE. Oh, nice. Okay. Well, Jake is now holding up an HDPE Gatorade (laughs) bottle. So we're having so many examples shown here. But that's also around, you know, that those rates will vary from, from 20 to 30% recycling rates per year. And so as you start combining the different the differentiation in these rates amongst these different polymer families, this is going to change your overall recycling rate. But looking across the highest produced polymers of the world, which are the polyolefins, so polyethylene grades and polypropylene grades, with PET coming in next, and then probably polystyrene and PVC. And... This is why we see such variations in world recycling rates on an annual basis, because demands of those materials are always kind of fluctuating in tandem with each other. And on top of that, recycling as it stands now, it's so limited by collection, sortation, and participation from consumers. And you've seen in the last couple of years, there's been a lot of media about how recycling's broken. And I'm not saying that's wrong, uh, because it is a broken system if you look at it as it stands today. But there's so many people trying to make it better. So when we get these stories out into the media that are like, your material will never be recycled, I think it makes consumers feel like they don't even want to try to participate and put things in the recycling bins, which is quite sad because people like myself trying to make these technologies that will deconstruct these materials and keep these carbons circular, these companies who could invest in that are so nervous about consistent feedstock because consumer participation fluctuates so much as well. So this is a, these are the reasons why numbers are low and also why they fluctuate so much. And the ranges are usually anywhere from 3% to maybe 15% global overall recycling rate of all plastics. Wow. So, okay. So there's just a ton of different factors that go into how that overall recycling rate changes. And I totally agree. I, I'm with you. I mean, it doesn't help that I live in South Mississippi and recycling isn't important here as a, <laughs> as a state. But, um, you know, I, I'm, dev- I'm also I'm for sure affected by hearing all from left and right that recycling processes that we deal with don't often help. And so it makes me less inclined. So yep. you've mentioned a few different specific polymers, high-density polyethylene, polyethylene terephthalate. The polyolefins, polyvinyl chloride, it sounds like we are going to need to, or do we need to change from this original library of polymer sources to generate new plastics from different polymers to be able to achieve what Bottle is aiming to do? Yes, absolutely. And that is short answer, yes, 100%. Long answer is uh, in Bottle as well, in tandem with trying to develop these plastic deconstruction and upcycling technologies so that we could start making a dent on the exorbitant amount of waste streams we're creating today. In tandem with that, we also have a major pillar and bottle that we call redesign. And the concept here is, okay, now let's go back to the drawing board and figure out how we turn off this, this bicket. What do you call it? Spout. The where the water comes out as an analogy. Close. Close the spigot. I so think, yeah, that maybe? sounds right. We got to close it. T- turn off the tap. There, that works. Turn off the tap. <laughs> yeah. Okay. okay. Um, and so the concept around behind redesign is, if we look back seventy or so years ago, 
when we discovered polymers and we started making plastics and everybody was like, holy crap, this is the most amazing material we've ever seen. It's so cheap. You can throw it away. And we started mass producing it and single using it. And we never built out a recycling system for this material. And we never designed these polymers to be depolymerizable or deconstructible. That wasn't the point. When you look at a carbon-carbon backbone of polyethylene, you're like, this is perfect as it is. It's not supposed to come apart. And so when we think about redesigning, that's what we're trying to think about is how do we actually build in what we call you know, depolymerizability to these polymers to create new plastics for the future that are inherently meant to come apart at the end of their lifetime, not necessarily just through biodegradation routes, but through chemical triggers, through catalysts, things that will help us meet performance metrics of today's existing polymers, but again, bring back to this concept of recyclable by design. So this is the fun part of bottle where we do a lot of fundamental polymer chemistry and go back again to that drawing board and think about monomers that we conventionally don't use and, and think about new materials for the future that can also have built-in biodegradability so that if these materials are lost to the natural environment, which they never should be, it's just unfortunately that's still going to happen even in a perfect recycling world. But if they're lost, they can over time naturally biodegrade to biomass, water, and carbon dioxide. So the redesign part is really fun because it's totally new chemistries coming together in fun ways to make new materials. Yeah. That's that's an incredible journey to to embark on. How how far into this journey has Bottle gone so far? How long has this been going on? So as a research consortium, we're actually only two years old. We just finished our second year as a consortium. So we're kind of babies away, uh, in a way, in this world. Um, and I, I want to point out, too, that the redesign pillar of Bottle, that is led by Eugene Chen's group at Colorado State University. And they are just blowing it out of the water. I mean, you should see the portfolio of polymers they're coming up with that have melt temperatures of 150 C, degradation temperatures of 350 C, but in the presence of a catalyst will completely depolymerize to monomer at 100 C. And if you compare that to something like polyethylene, Right now, as the way those materials stands, if you want to deconstruct polyethylene via just heating and, catal and catalysts, you're required to usually go up to temperatures of 500 C or higher. Because again, carbon-carbon bonds like that don't want to break. And so with these new polymers that Eugene Chen's group is developing, we're really finding that it is possible to create processable new plastics that are inherently able to depolymerize in a, you know, in a catalytic environment while maintaining thermal stability similar to that of something like a polyethylene or polystyrene. And so they're killing it and they're doing an amazing job. And basically over the last two years, what we've done in Bottle is took the approach of let's make a whole portfolio of things from rigids, things from flexible films, things that could be used in um, cosmetics applications, things that can be used as adhesives, elastomers, and have kind of new polymers for each of these areas. And now going into our third year as a consortium, we're now starting to narrow down, okay, which one of these from an economic point of view, life cycle assessment point of view, which one of these polymers are just kicking butt in every, every metric. And we're hoping over the next two years or so that we're going to start demonstrating feasibility and scalability of some of these materials 
and hopefully start getting the attention of polymer producers that might be interested to think, okay, maybe it's time that we invest in a recyclable by design material. So mm-hmm. that's kind of where we're at right now in that space. Are the the work by Dr. Chen and his and his group has this been published? Are you able to tell us anything about that? Oh yeah, we've got amazing publications. I mean, they are just a powerhouse of of new polymers. It's incredible. Excellent. Well, let's talk about that. What tell us about these new polymers? They're not HDPE, they're not PET. What are we working with here? What you said, you mentioned the difficulty in the the traditional polymers is breaking those carbon-carbon bonds. So I imagine we're not dealing with breaking carbon-carbon bonds anymore. Right. If you look at some of these materials, you're going to see a lot of the common functionality will be esters. A lot of these will be polyester-based. And I will probably point out as one of the shining star examples that came out of bottle and, and was led by Eugene are what we're calling designer PHAs. So for those of you who are not familiar with these types of polymers, uh, their PHAs stand for polyhydroxyalkanoates. They're actually already commercially available materials on the market today made by companies like Danimer, um, which just acquired Novamer. And PHAs are considered the most, quote, biodegradable polyester that is commercially produced as it stands today. So PHAs, the way we make them now, are bacterially derived. So They are synthesized inside a bacteria, and they are recovered in that fashion. And the bacteria pathway, as you can imagine, is low energy. It's a natural pathway. These are natural polymers. There's a lot of cool things about them. But these particular PHAs that are bacterially derived suffer from usually poor mechanical properties. They're definitely not performing as well as, say, a polyethylene, but there's a lot of work being done to try to modify the bacterial approach with, you know, different feedstocks and, and bring in new functionalities there. But we decided in Bottle that we also wanted to look into synthesizing PHAs ourselves. And the cool thing about synthesizing a PHA yourself is you get to impart control over the stereochemistry. And as many of us know as polymer chemists, stereochemistry of a polymer means everything. And polypropylene is one of the, you know, most amazing examples of that. So if you think about... Wait, for for those who are not a polymer chemist, what is stereochemistry and why does it matter in what we're doing? Okay, so stereochemistry is basically where the bonds in a 3D dimension are going to go. So if you think about polypropylene, uh, it's very much like polyethylene, but it has a third methyl group off the backbone. And so this gives it different properties from polyethylene, but some similarities at the same time. So depending on whether that methyl group on the polypropylene backbone is going to be atactic or isotactic or random, it will be a completely different polymer. And it's amazing. So you're not changing the chemistry of polypropylene at all. It is the same exact chemical backbone. It's just where that bond is going to exist. You guys can't see my hands, but I'm kind of like moving my hand around in this like 3D dimension. Where where the bond orients itself relative to the next segment of the chain. Yes. This is what makes all the difference. And so atactic, for example, polypropylene will basically be a goo. It's, It's, you can't even use it. Well, isotactic polypropylene, which is what we use on the market today, is a rigid, amazing, high temp, high melting temp polymer. And so this is what inspired Bottle and Eugene's group to look at stereochemistry in PHAs. 
Um, and so what's really amazing is last year they synthesized a series of these PHAs um, based on these really cool diolide monomers. So the diolides can be derived from succinic acid. So you're actually still using a bio-based monomer, which is also pretty cool. So you're not losing the bio-derived content of that polymer. So from succinic acid, we can create these diolide monomers, which are essentially these cyclic monomers. And for those of you who are not polymer chemists out there, we love ring opening polymerization because it's the easiest polymerization ever to do. And you get to impart a ton of stereo control over that type of polymerization through the catalyst that you choose. And so Eugene's group synthesized basically four different PHAs with different stereochemistry and found that PHA number one matched the mechanical performance of polyethylene. PHA number two matched the mechanical performance of polypropylene. PHA number three, super high melt temperature. PHA number four, ABCD. So this was published in Science actually um, last year, which was an amazing accomplishment by that group. I am not on that paper. I'll be the first person to tell you guys this. If I was, I'd be super <laughs> stoked. But I would. this was before my time at Bottle. I've only been uh, within the uh, research group for a year. Um, but this is just giving an example of of something so simple that it's amazing and has it honestly been done before. And these polymers are remarkable. I mean, they, they're truly behaving like a polyolefin today while maintaining biodegradability in the backbone. And also because of the ester functionality, they're really easy to unzip and depolymerize back into respective monomers. So that's a cool example. You guys can find that work that's published and available and um, it's pretty awesome. Awesome. Uh, I we'll get a we'll get a link to that in the in the show notes later because we do that sort of thing. Now. Cool. Well, you talked about Bottle Consortium having three main pillars. Yes. One of them being redesign. What can you tell us again? What the other two were? Yes. Yeah, we jumped around a little bit, which is totally yeah. cool. I like that because I feel like we always save redesign for last when it's one of the most important ones. But the other two pillars are, one is what I mentioned at the beginning, which is deconstruction. And that is where we're looking at both chemocatalytic and biocatalytic. So essentially, chem, you know, um, how do I word this? Synth you synthesize catalysts versus enzymes um, to take apart these polymer backbones in the lowest energy pathways possible. And then that funnels into our second pillar, which we call upcycling. And this is honestly becoming like the world's greatest buzzword right now. People are calling everything they do upcycling. So I do feel like when I say it, people are kind of just like, okay, another upcycling. But <laughs> it is the idea to me, upcycling actually means more separations in chemical engineering, which is because, as I mentioned in the beginning, when we deconstruct plastic waste, not just, you know, model compounds, but real waste streams. They're not going to just be the monomers. They're going to be mixtures with all these other components that come through. So you get this kind of soup of a mess that there's a lot of monomer in there and it's valuable and you want it, but you have to get it out and isolate it and purify it from that soup. So upcycling really has morphed into what are the best downstream separations, unit operations, what kind of chemical engineering can we imply or apply to isolate these monomers from the waste and reuse them in a circular fashion? And that is really challenging. This is where your economics and your energy analyses kind of start going haywire because it's not that hard to take apart polymers on a chemistry level. You know, we have a lot of ways we can do that. But the hard part is then, okay, 
once you have the mixture of molecules, what the heck do you do with it? And that's tough. And, you know, things like conventional distillation is really energy intensive and it's really expensive. So a huge focus of bottle, we have amazing separations people and in my degrees are engineering, but I'm definitely a chemist. Um, so I feel like I am so impressed by these people who really truly know separations engineering, but we're trying to bring in kind of unique pathways to isolate these monomers using uh, countercurrent chromatography, which is super cool and, and is a new kind of pathway that essentially uses something similar to liquid liquid extractions to separate out seven different molecules from each other or other other membrane separations and, and things like that that require less energy. So that's kind of what upcycling has become. How do we get these useful chemical building blocks out and in a pure enough way that polymer scientists can use them because you can never, that's one thing that was pounded into our heads in grad school is you can't make a good polymer unless you have the world's purest polymer. So that's so, <laughs> so important uh, to do. So that those are the two other big research pillars of the of the consortium. Which were, they were deconstruction and separation. Yes, which is not called okay. separations. It's called upcycling, but it's basically separation. Upcycling. Okay, yes. <laughs> okay. So deconstruction, upcycling. And redesign. And redesign. The three pillars of bottom. Yes. Well, I, I realized that we started talking about bottle and uh, what all of that was as soon as we got started in the interview, basically right after I said that I would start with questions about you. <laughs> Um, so let's, let's talk about you, Kat, CTO of the Bottle Consortium. Um, polymer scientist, how did you find your way? How did you find polymer science? Because for, I, for, for certain, for me, I, I was like a random slide in Gen Chem and I was like, Hey, that sounds kind of cool. And it took off from there. So what, how did, how did you find polymer science? Yeah, Jake, I think your origination story is probably similar to a lot of us. We're, we're that kind of generation that polymers started getting really cool. Uh, and we all just had some some day that was like, oh, that seems neat. And that just kind of defined the rest of our, our paths. And for mine, it was at Florida State. When I was there, I was in the chemical engineering program for my bachelor's. And they built out this new, I, I probably am not going to remember the exact name of the center. So my Florida State people out there, forgive me if I get it wrong. But it was something about like the Center for Nanocomposites Materials Research, something like that. And it was brand new, this gorgeous new huge building, brand new labs right next to the engineering campus. And they were recruiting undergrads to work in the labs. And they were paying like $20 an hour. And I was like, dang that sounds cool. I'm going to go work there. Like that was basically my motivation was, oh, I'll, I'll do undergrad research. This will look good on my resume and I can make some money. So I started working there and I started working with cyclic olefin copolymers or COCs and jumped right into a composite project there with Professor Zhang. And I was like, oh my God, polymers are so cool. Like it was just a really fun field to work in. And I don't know why I thought they were so neat. I think it, I've always been a thermodynamics person. And I think that I was just fascinated about the spaghetti chains existing in this equilibrium <laughs> together and how different it was from something like metals and glass. And I was like, wow, this is just awesome. There's, and there was, we were during that time, like everyone was just making new polymers all the time. And it was super fun. Um, 
and then I just kept I just kept working there through my last couple of years. And Jeff Wiggins came and did a seminar and recruited me as an REU for Southern Mississippi and their school of polymers. And I was like, hey, more chance to make money because they were paying. So <laughs> they were paying well, they paid as, a, so well. as an REU program. <laughs> yes, the REU program was great. And at that point, I didn't even think I wanted to go to grad school. I thought, because most chemies tend to go into industry because it, it pays quite well as a bachelor degree. And I was like, yeah, that's probably what I'll do. And then when I did the REU, I was like, wow, I actually love research. And that just kind of defined the rest of that path to continue on into polymers. And then during that time, I found out plastics were polymers and they were destroying the environment. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> the thing that I love betrayed me. <laughs> and so that also kind of those two came together as I started wanting to think about grad school. And that is what defined a lot of my ambition of like, okay, these are awesome materials, but we got to make them more sustainable. Um, and that's kind of what started that, but that obsession, honestly, then. Did you get to work on any sustainability research in grad school? No, I didn't. And it made me super <laughs> sad at the time. There was truly just like no funding for it. No one cared about it yet. During that time, the big topics were living polymerization. And that was where all the like the NSF funding was coming from. I actually did do my independent research proposal, if you remember, Jake, on recyclable epoxy thermosets and that was like i remember every slide <laughs> that was like the first time i finally got to show the department like this is what i actually want to be working on um but i don't hold any grudges about that because one my advisor sarah morgan was amazing to me gave me every opportunity put, get, sent me to conferences put me in front of people my research got me what I needed for, for my career. And I did enjoy my work because I love physical chemistry and math. And that's what I got to basically do in my, in my PhD research and go to Oak Ridge and use neutrons. And I, I mean, I loved it, but it wasn't until after grad school that I started working into the plastic recycling space. So when you, you, you weren't working on any sustainability projects and you were, that was something that like you said, drove you crazy. But because you weren't working on sustainability, was it hard for you ever to motivate yourself for your own research? Yeah, I mean, I think even if I was working in sustainability, I'm sure I would have been struggling in grad school with motivation like we all do no matter what. So that's one thing to keep okay, in mind. Okay, so that'll be my – that's my question. So just in general then, how do you – actually, I like that you state that even if you are working on something, there will be times that you struggle with motivation. But how do you cope with that? How do you how do you fight that in yourself? How do you get yourself to keep going? I think there's a couple of different ways to do that. I mean, one, I think many of us have to understand that so much about getting a PhD isn't about how smart you are, or how good at chemistry you are. A lot of it is going to be what is your mental capacity to go into your job and fail at it every day and not lose your mind? Like that's definitely step one. And so once you get to that place where you realize that is going to be 95% of your job is failing and that everyone around you is going through the same thing, even if it seems like their research is cooler and better and they're more successful, they're dying inside just like you are. And that might sound extreme and I don't mean it to be that dramatic, but that was something like you always, at least for myself, I always kind of felt like so many people had cooler projects and were doing better than I was. Um, and you just have to realize that that's not true. We're all in the same boat. 
two, the light at the end of the tunnel is so important to remember as well. And I really will emphasize that a PhD in higher education opens so many doors for you. It is amazing what that degree opens for you when compared to a bachelor's degree. And I'm not saying that's always fair. We, I know amazing scientists that only have a bachelor's degree that kick butt. And I wish I could promote them to levels as high as me. Um, but the fact of the matter is our world is not structured like that yet. Maybe things will change. And if you have a PhD to your name and you're good at talking science, woo, you will have a lot of doors open for you. So that's another thing to keep in mind. There's a light at the end of the tunnel. And once you get there, you're going to have a lot of choices, which is really, really great. And then three, I would say a support group is so important. And that looks different for a lot of people, you know, whether or not that's your own family or friends or things like that. I had a book club in grad school and I loved those ladies so much. And I looked forward to that book club. It truly was a big part of what kept me like so sane. It kept me going. And we, to this day, there's three people from that book club in my book club now that we've continued. Um, and it's just, I, I still love it and I love them. Um, but that's something like that. Like that could be different for different people. I also found yoga, which I know sounds cheesy, but I found yoga in grad school and totally changed my life. And that helped me so much. Um, I really encourage people to give it a try. It's amazing. And yeah, so those are just some suggestions of how to get through it all. All useful suggestions. To I mean, I'm still in grad school, so that was warming to hear. Um, awesome, thanks, Kat. Is there my last question? Is there anything else that about bottle that you would like to add that maybe we didn't talk about? I think what I'd like to add it might be more of a PSA than a plug for bottle, but bottle and many consortiums like bottle because we're not totally unique. There's actually quite a bit of centers that are similar to us working really, really hard to help solve this problem. But at the end of the day, it won't matter unless we have local communities and counties and states and cities and all of that participating and supporting their recycling programs. And these programs are tough to maintain. They can be expensive. And a lot of towns and municipalities in the U.S. have given up on it. And it's really sad because if we have the feedstock, the economics will ultimately make sense but we need people to participate until that happens. So I would put out into the world to get involved locally, to find out, you know, how you can support your local waste collectors. What does this mean? How can you recycle better? What is your local MRF, which is the recovery facility that takes your recyclables, actually take? Because there's a lot of wishful recycling, which is when people put things in a bin because they're like, well, I don't know if this can be recycled, but just in case I'll put it in my recycling bin. That's actually the exact opposite that you should do. And if you're in doubt, put it in the trash because if it's not supposed to be recycled, it actually contaminates those waste streams. It makes it more difficult for the sorters and collectors to sort out. And it's so unfair that this onus is on the consumers. But the fact of the matter is it it is right now. So educate yourselves. Find out how to recycle properly. It's going to be inconvenient. Are there are there specific like if I was like you know what I actually I know right now that I don't know enough about consumer recycling things like that where I, online I assume 
do I start in finding that information? So the first thing you would try to do is find your county's what's called a MRF, and that stands for Municipal Recovery Facility. They usually have a website with directions on what they will take, what they won't take, and then if there is special recycling, how you can drop it off, how you can get rid of, you know, contaminated home cleaning products, paint cans, batteries, all that stuff that's a little bit more special, they'll have it on there. You'll find a lot of these websites are old and not that great because they don't have any money. They can't make great websites. Um, But that's the first place to look, right there. And then my sister, to give an example, was really struggling finding this information. So she called, I guess, what do you call it? The city government, city hall. And they were super nice to her about it. And they connected her with the right people. And they, they told her what she could recycle. And everyone wants you to be involved. And so that's where you should start locally. Awesome. Sounds great. Kat, thank you so much for your time. I, I actually, I definitely have more questions. I wish we had more time, but maybe uh, we'll we'll set up another interview sometime in the future. I I, I hope our guests have questions also. If, if you do, please reach out. But thank you so much, Kat, for, for this interview today. I appreciate thank you, your Jake. Time here. It was really fun. Thanks a lot. And thank you, everyone, for listening to today's episode. My name is Jacob Sheckman. You're listening to the Polymer Science Podcast. And if you're like me and would like to ask Kat any more questions here, Dr. Kat, excuse me, please reach out at polymersciencepodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.